This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome back inside the bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. On this week's podcast, Dominic Goes West. As everyone's favourite spad, Dominic Cummings, leaves number 10 for his real passion, blogging. And as Boris Johnson isolates, again, what does the unforeseen departure of super forecaster Squidward mean for the government <laughs> and the country? Plus, QAnon stole my grandma. What happens when members of your family <laughs> fall into the conspiracy mindset? Can you de-radicalise fake news addicts on your Christmas card list? Plus, Netflix and Kill. We're looking at the public service broadcasting inquiry. Is the BBC actually doomed? And what's the story with that strange statue in honour of Mary Wollstonecroft? All this and more in today's Bunker. Welcome back to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker. We're out every Tuesday with dailies on Wednesdays, Thursdays and Fridays, plus the invaluable Start Your Week on Monday mornings. So subscribe on your favourite app. You'll be glad that you did. Joining us today, we have the CEO of Best for Britain, Naomi Smith. Hello, Naomi. Hi, Andrew. It's squeaky bomb time on the EU talks front. The supposed final round of the EU trade talks are on. What should we expect over the next few days? Nothing. Another nearly de- nearly week of nearly stuff. Oh, I wish I could tell you differently. Uh, we're probably now seven days away or so from what would really need to be the deadline for a deal. So most people now touting the 23rd of November as the final final day. In terms of the coming days, it's as ever dogged by our old friends, Level Playing Field and Fish. <laughs> um, and on the Level Playing Field, the UK is resisting uh, the ability for either side to retaliate if we depart from Level Playing Field rules. Um, but on state aid, there's been a bit more uh, progress already, and we're hoping that an agreement can be reached on things like an independent UK enforcement authority, a dispute mechanism, and retaliatory measures that would need to be in place while arbitration was in train. On fish, we remain oceans apart. Um, uh-huh. I think, Very good, yes. I, I think, the scale I of think the problem the, cannot be underestimated. The, the EU 27 <laughs> states are getting increasingly frustrated about what it is they're going to have to sign up to, or even if they will have to. Because if the deal can be ratified by the, the council and the parliament themselves, it won't need to go back through the others. Now, the gossip machines over the weekend... Or churning out news that a temporary deal may be negotiated over the next week or so, crucially within the current legal framework, um, to see us through the worst of the epidemic, uh, with a fuller deal being worked up ready for the second half of 2021. But for this week, I think that the message is don't hold your breath for white smoke, but do hope that the political actors, so Johnson and von der Leyen, will hammer something out between themselves next week, though obviously not in person, now that once again our Prime Minister has been exposed <laughs> to the Rona. I mean, just before we move on, I do just want to say, did did people see some of the photos that they put out at the end of last week and it was MPs standing next to Johnson and they were sort of trying to stand as if they weren't that close to each other, but none of them had masks on, right? So hmm. if that's the Insta selfie that they're happy with going up on the internet... 
like you can only imagine how non-COVID compliant they were when the camera wasn't on them, right? So, you know, bloody no surprise he's got to isolate. It's going to be hugs and scrums and, you know, giving, getting people in a headlock in the cabinet room, all top laughs for the uh, for the bad boys of Brexit. <laughs> also on today's panel, it's writer, commentator, actor, cook, singer. He's our very own Prince Nut Nuts. It's uh, Alex Andreo. <laughs> Hello, Alex. How are you? I'm all right. So Boris is uh, self-isolating after coming into contact with uh, COVID-positive MP for Ashfield, Lee Anderson. Is this going to knock Reset Week off its rails? Or is it actually a blessing in disguise that Boris Johnson has kept hidden under the stairs for a while? Uh, as Sky's Joe Pike put it, the Reset now needs a Reset. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not like he's been dynamic of late. Is it? Isolated, not isolated. He's been about as useful yeah. as a spare prick in a brothel. But if he, It's a beautiful he image up, in connection with Boris Johnson there, uh, Alex. If, if he, I'll tell you what, if he ends up testing positive, that will be a big story. Because hmm. not only will there be like the highest profile person in the world that's been reinfected, so it'll push that into the conversation, but it will be a case of to paraphrase Oscar Wilde, to catch coronavirus once may be regarded as a misfortune. <laughs> <laughs> to, to catch it twice looks like carelessness. On the upside, though, he was alerted to his diagnosis by test and trace, so it does work. Do you just need prime ministerial grade Bluetooth? All right. So he, okay, here's the thing, all right. The app, explicitly and by design, doesn't tell you who was the person you came into contact with that has tested positive. So Lee Anderson is actually an assumption, right? It's a mm-hmm. guess. Either that or the government has a backdoor into data which is not meant to be held anywhere centrally. That's an interesting thing, huh? How how do how does he know it was Lee Anderson? I don't know. It could have been any of a number of people he's come into contact or with. Maybe Lee Anderson got a ping that says you've been in contact with the Prime Minister. So pre no, no, but well, exactly. pregnancy <laughs> testing or something like we that. Know that. I mean, we know that Lee Anderson tested positive and we know that he had a meeting with the Prime Minister, but the Prime Minister's had meetings with dozens of people. Well, we'll have to talk to GCHQ about this. Completing Ooh. the panel is staff writer for The Atlantic and our unofficial US Bureau Chief, Yasmin Saran. <laughs> Hello, Yasmin. How are you? Hi there. I'm, you know... Uh, I'm surviving. (laughs) Okay, more hot Trump updates. On Sunday, Trump did acknowledge that Joe Biden had won the election, but only because the election was rigged, he tweeted. Are you sensing any progress with Republicans getting Donald to accept the fact of his loss at all? Not really. I mean, it it seems as though the president's kind of going through the five stages of grief. You know, first you have denial followed by anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And so far, he seems to kind of be toggling between the first two. Mm. Um, as you mentioned, there's that one tweet where, where he said, or he kind of you know, suggested that Joe Biden won, quickly followed by because it was rigged. You know, but, but his subsequent tweets, you look at them now, it kind of tells a different story. It really does feel like he's still kind of firmly set in that, in that first phase. Um, as for the Republicans, though, there seems to be kind of a genuine desire, I think, to humor the president, but also, you know, trying to stay in his good graces. You know, the way I'm interpreting it, at least, is that, you know, at least among the more ambitious among them, and I'm thinking of like the Mike Pompeo's of the world, for example, there's perhaps a calculation that they will need Trump's blessing to stage their own kind of future presidential runs, be it in 2024, 2028. 
And in order to do that, they probably need the president saying good things about them, even if, you know, later down the line, he does finally accept the result. Is anybody really uh, sort of a beginning to think about the fact that while that might be all well and good for your in, your internal run inside the Republican cinematic universe, that the denigration of American democracy as a thing might not play out well for you in the longer run? I mean, does anybody, I mean, I, I just saw John Bolton <laughs> pop up and say this. And when, when evil Ned Flanders is saying it, it's kind of penetrating somewhere. But is, it, is that idea that, that perhaps chipping away at American democracy might not be a good idea? Yeah, you would think. Yeah, you would think that that would maybe kind of go into their calculations at some point, but it doesn't really seem to be bothering people. I mean, we've talked about this before, but this notion that you could have millions of Americans, if we're taking all of Trump supporters, as as many, excuse me, if we're taking all of Trump supporters, you know, possibly more than 70 million Americans who walk away from this election believing that it was fraudulent and therefore don't believe in the system anymore. I mean, that's a really dangerous game to play with American democracy. Um, And yes, it's true. You do have folks like John Bolton, but you know, Bolton wrote his book. He's already out. He's already kind of said his piece. He doesn't have anything to lose. I think the real kind of judge is looking at these Republicans who are in positions of power, the Mitch McConnells, the Mike Pompeo's, you know, all these senior Republicans who perhaps do have something to lose, but also might, you know, potentially care about losing American democracy more. And so far, we really haven't seen those Republicans move. We have seen movement from, you know, former presidents, George Bush, Mitt Romney. Uh, you know, I, I would imagine if the late John McCain were still alive, he would probably have a thing or two to say about what the president's doing. But, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's a bit, uh, it's, it's concerning to say the least. Trump has been sacking senior defense people in the past few days and replacing them with loyalists, often replacing them as civil servants. So they can't easily be uh, dispensed with it when Biden comes into power. What, what's he trying to do here? Is he trying to sort of em- embed some kind of Operation Werewolf resistance in the, uh, you know, create his own deep state? I'm kind of wary of a pl- like, you know, thinking about Trump having some sort of deep, grander strategy, because I, I really don't think he's capable of that at this point. I, I think he's kind of, if he does have a strategy, I think it's the burn it down one to the extent that he can frustrate Biden's ascent, whether that's by, you know, as you say, installing loyalists, uh, making last minute foreign policy moves that might frustrate Biden's agenda, or even, you know, simply just by disrupting the normal transition proceedings. Um, You know, I think he'll do that. I mean, it's worth remembering that previous presidents, you know, typically invite their successors for a meeting in the White House. Um, President-elects are usually given access to intelligence briefings. Uh, These are all things that were afforded to Trump by the outgoing Obama administration, and he's refusing to pay it forward when it comes to Biden. Uh, So, yeah, it's... It's all just a bit embarrassing. (laughs) You thought it was the West Wing. You thought it was House of Cards. Actually, it's a really shitty Tom Clancy novel. Firstly, you come at Princess Nut Nuts, you best not miss. In a golden moment last Friday evening, Dominic Cummings walked out of number 10 for what seems like the final time, following in the footsteps of his vote league colleague, Lee Kane, who departed on Wednesday. Senior Conservatives were quick to declare this as a chance for a reset government, as we've mentioned, with Johnson reportedly planning a charm offensive to win back Tory MPs who felt frozen out under Cummings. And then Johnson was exposed to COVID and had to isolate, and that was the end of that. Alex, firstly, what was in Dominic Cummings' box? Did he steal all the Wi-Fi dongles and all the good pens? (laughs) From his pattern of behaviour, I have to say my first thought was Gwyneth Paltrow's head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, but from past experience, uh, the truth is bound to be far more prosaic. It's probably a T-shirt with a stain from some coronation chicken, a scarf from a day that turned out to be nicer than expected, a couple of notebooks full of draft blogs, and probably a hole punch that he remembered at the last minute as he was about to walk out, went back for, because he bought it and never got the money from Petty Cash, so it's actually <laughs> his. I, I, I can totally say that. As you mentioned, the reset needs a reset, but what would the reset, if it hadn't needed a reset, have meant in practice? I mean, can can't can and the nothing, compass, nothing, nothing at all. It means absolutely nothing. The toxicity always emanated from Johnson. You can replace as many members of his coterie as you like. The factions will reappear almost instantly because they fill a void of leadership left by his lack of understanding of his brief, his lack of engagement with the detail, his indifference, and his indecision. So you can sack everyone beneath him the factions will reform because he's not leading this Sick government. building syndrome. So the political editor of The Spectator, James Forsyth, said that Cummings had bent the arc of history in this country. Is that true? Was he really that influential? I mean, we are outside the EU. No, of course not. <laughs> Look, I completely understand a columnist's need for grandiosity. I'm guilty of it myself. But this is a comically... Anglo-centric point of view. I mean, Brexit is significant, but was a thing 40 years in the making and limited in scope. So even Brexit in the fullness of time will be a mere blip in the arc of history. It'll be a footnote. And Cummings is a footnote to that footnote. Mm. Naomi, are you disappointed that he's not sticking around to carry the Brexit can or at least uh, rage away pretending that there is no can to carry? No, I mean, I, I listened to the uh, emergency cast that Oh God What Now did with Ian at the end of last week and pretty much agreed with everything that he said that, no, we have to rejoice in the fact that he's going. I'm not disappointed, uh, largely because he's synonymous enough with it anyway that, you know, it, it will always be leveled at him. Um, and more importantly, because as Alex said, there's still tons and tons of the Vote Leave gang left around both number 10 in, in paid roles and, of course, around the cabinet table. Um, you know, chief among them, Johnson, Gove, Rob, etc. And they can all fucking well carry the can, as far as I'm concerned. It was a big yeah. weekend for uh, Westminster Village addicts uh, as the uh, the blow-by-blow uh, blow account of what went on inside number 10 was recounted with glee. Tim Shipman in the Sunday Times going overboard on it. And a large part of it involved presenting Carrie Simmons as this kind of Lady Macbeth role. Is it normal for a Prime Minister's Party to have so much power? And what did you make of the Princess Not Nuts game co- name calling? Um, well, I was, I was sort of thinking about this, and I think the last partner of the Prime Minister who was overtly party political was Cherie Blair, who, of course, had been a, a staunch party activist before going into number 10. And, of course, Carrie Simmons was comms chief at Tory Party HQ, um, whereas Philip May, Sarah Brown, Sam Cam you know, much less uh, big P political figures, of course. And and on the the nut nut stuff, look, I, I, I think, you know, of course it's juvenile and sexist, but of course she is also in the public eye and therefore some of this is to be expected. And I think all of those things can simultaneously be true. 
And I just think it further exposes the nasty misogyny of the vote leavers. Um, and of course, the bunny boiler rhetoric is always the lazy trope that gets leveled at, at, at women scorned. But um, to be honest, if I was mm. betrothed to a man who didn't even know how many children he has, I'd be royally not <laughs> Do you think that Dominic Cummings' departure will mean any kind of a change for the Brexit deal endgame at all? Or, or is, that, is that lorry well and truly left the, uh, the lorry park to sit in its great big long view? <laughs> Or it's great big puddle because the whole thing's bloody flooded. Um, No, uh, I I think I fear that even though Johnson probably does want a deal and would be naturally inclined to something a bit softer, that having ousted Kane and Cummings and and that coterie, he will now not want to play into their betrayal narrative at all, uh, or that of, of Nigel Farage's, so may feel he has to stick to a harder line, even though perhaps he'd rather not. And let's remember that there are 50 anti-lockdown rebels led by Steve Baker and Graham Brady uh, already sharpening their knives. And a great many of them, of course, are the let's go WTO loons. Mm. So it's it's the CRG is the new ERG. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> MPs have been uh, sort of relaxedly uh saying that we're now going to see the old boris back again they seem to be in uh, a delighted state of sort of you know narcotized stupor at this this wonderful uh, prospect what is the old boris is there a real boris johnson in there to come out or is the is every boris johnson just the, the latest iteration responding to the latest set of circumstances I mean, I think there is a real Boris Johnson, yes, and he's an indecisive, self-aggrandizing, womanizing journalist who isn't afraid to arrange for his adversaries to get beaten up. You know, these are all things we know to be true of, of the Prime Minister. As to whether we'll see him, I suspect not, because hasn't Allegra Stratton been appointed so that we don't have to? Uh, she's going to be taking all the press briefings instead. And, and you know, let's remember that Simmons and Stratton, if they are now the new power couple of number 10, and these women are, uh, are taking control of things and uh, having, you know, pushed the Kane and Cummings boys uh, away, they are both leavers. They are both very pro-Brexit people. So I I suspect that it's unlikely to change the tone of what we've been hearing drastically on the on the Brexit. It is. You're absolutely right. It is a weird scenario, isn't it? This whole thing falls apart because the prime minister is trying to get himself a new face in public, get somebody else to stand behind the lectern. And the result of it is that the party says, fantastic. Now it's time to get Boris back in front of the people. That's what people like. That's what. uh, Yeah. Do you think Allegra Stratton actually will end up doing this for very long? Or do you think she'll find it somewhat unrewarding? <laughs> yeah, well, she's trying to she's trying to beat the mooch, right? She's trying to get past eleven or twelve days or whatever it is. Um, apparently, she's got a, a photo of him on her wall as a as a reminder. Of no. him. Oh my God, beat the mooch! <laughs> beat the mooch! You got to beat the mooch! A yeah. phone game. Uh, it should be. I a think Spark should re-release "Beat the Clock." Beat the mooch! You got to beat the mooch. I mean, well, we we know that she doesn't mess around. She's an incredibly professional person. She's very good at the jobs that she does. So I, I don't think she'd stick around if she wasn't having influence. And, you know, as the shipment piece laid bare over the weekend, she was not afraid to say, you choose or I'm off or I can't work with this person or for this person unless, you know, it's on my terms and how I like it to be. So um, uh, I, he won't want to be seen to be losing uh, another senior appointment, but I don't think she would be afraid to walk if uh, if he didn't do what he was told to do by her. 
Yasmin, we always think of American politics as a fair bit more brutal than ours. Was Cummings really kind of in the mould of like, you know, the great killer operators, the Lee Atwaters, the win at all costs types that we tend to not have here? It's it's a good question because when I when I think of like Lee Atwater, I mean, I, I think of someone who, you know, obviously was kind of part of the Republican Party machine who like, you know, as, as I recall, described politics like as a passion of his. And when I think of Cummings, I, I don't really think of that. Like I think of someone who obviously, you know, kind of has a clear plan. But I mean, it, he doesn't belong yeah, to he's a political not a party, right? Like, I mean, I know he's like yeah. worked with conservative folks. Yeah, like it, it never kind of, I'm, I, I could be wrong, but like just from what I've observed of Cummings in my time here, I've never gauged him as someone who had the conservative party's interests at heart per se, but rather had his own plan for how he wanted to, like, obviously Brexit mm-hmm. being first and foremost, but also like how to sort of overhaul the British government. He never really struck me as someone who, you know, really felt like, he, you know, had a vested interest in like seeing this thing through. I mean, if his, if his blogs or anything to go by, he, I don't know how legit this was, you know, he wanted to be out in a year anyway. So um, I guess in a way, yeah, maybe it, it's an interesting comparison, but, um, but yeah, I, I don't, I never kind of got the impression that he cared enough, <laughs> if, if that makes sense. Yeah. As a person who uh, can observe the British government with a, a moderate degree of distance, being a national United States. Uh, do, you, do, you, do you look at our government and think, you know, uh, how does it function with these with these guys, you know, tearing around like Taz from the Warner Brothers cartoons, just smashing stuff up? Do you, I mean, do, do you, does it resonate with what's happening with Trump, or do you look at it and think, oh, stuff is a bit more a bit more small time, maybe a bit less robust? I, I certainly thought it was like less palace intrigue than Trump, perhaps at least until this weekend. I think obviously, as you said, there's that sort of Westminster village that's quite, you know, keen on all these details. But but I think the drama that kind of followed Cummings, you know, the sacking of special advisors, the, you know, imposing these network of spies to prevent media leaks, um, even though he's obviously accused of having, you know, caused a lot of these leaks himself, you know, all the, you know, obviously his, his, um, his trip to the Barnard Castle and, you know, even impacting the prime minister's own popularity. I mean, that, that kind of level of drama isn't initially what I expected coming here. And, and obviously I moved here sort of, it was just all Brexit all the time. So, um, <laughs> you know, it, uh, watching sort of him coming. All Brexit, all that long. <laughs> it was nice to have a distraction, yeah. albeit brief, from it. Uh, but, but yeah, um, so so yeah, I mean, it 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 wasn't quite what I've expected. And one might assume, as I kind of initially did when I saw the news, that oh, you know, maybe things will be a little less dramatic, a little more normal. But I think, as Alex rightly pointed out, you know, these these sort of factions vote leave versus not the fact that these like leave remain titles still matter and probably will for the foreseeable um, suggests to me that, you know, Cummings might leave, but I don't think the drama is going to be over anytime soon. Alex, are the BBC and the civil service and all the other institutions, they off the hook now. Are we, are we going to see the return of good chapism and, uh, you know, that sort of, ter- you know, terribly civilized uh, civil service dominated way of doing things. I don't know. Um, I think both have suffered intense trauma. Um, I think the civil service, my my instinct tells me it will recover purely by virtue of its sort of mammoth size and propensity to promote from within. So in the space of three, four years, most of the people promoted for partisan reasons will have been replaced by civil servants, by impartial, committed career civil servants. I am a lot less hopeful about the BBC I think large sections of the public see it as having 
betrayed its fiduciary duty to them, and I'm not sure it will ever truly recover. We're going to be coming on to the BBC a little bit later in the programme, but before we move on, Naomi, is this the last we're going to hear from Dominic Cummings, do you think? I know it's what you hope, but do you think? (laughs) Um, Look, I think David Gork said it best. Uh, He tweeted as soon as the news broke that Cummings was off, looking forward to reading the 5,000-word blogs on why those in government are complete idiots in failing to make a success of the glorious post-Brexit legacy they will have inherited. The Gorks and the Greaves have absolutely... This has been caviar to those guys. Oh, right. Absolutely. Dominic Greaves on Newsnight the other night. He literally could not stop grinning. Who's, yeah, who's top dumb now? The people I feel sorry for are the Daily Star, who'd really been hammering Cummings in a way. I've never seen the Daily Star be so interested in politics before. They had a Dominic Cummings Halloween mask the other day. Never seen anything like it in my life. It's been a year of conspiracy, QAnon, 5G masks, weaponized bats, COVID masks <laughs> to control your freedom and get you ready for Bill Gates' Great Reset. You know the kind of thing. Now that a COVID vaccine is on the way, those trying to combat conspiracy theories face their biggest challenge yet, getting people to take it when their Uncle Ken has seen a pandemic video and he won't shut up about it. <laughs> Older people and the very online seem most susceptible to this stuff. So how do we de-radicalise those who believe that they and they alone have the answer to what's going wrong in the world because they saw it on YouTube? Yasmin, at the beginning of October, Facebook banned all content related to the QAnon theory, labelling it a militarised social movement and placing restrictions on over 1,500 online groups. Is this enough to stop this people being radicalised by this stuff, or is, is QAnon just too embedded in American culture now? I mean, you know, some of these groups had, I think it was really millions of members in them. So it's, it. I mean, perhaps, you know, I, I'm not going to say it was, it was wrong for them to take action eventually, but it's kind of hard to put that type of genie back in the bottle. I mean, this is yeah. a, this is a, a, a conspiracy and I, I was going to say a belief system, almost like a religion um, that, you know, has spread well beyond the U S you know, it's even made its way to Europe. I mean, you're seeing, protests with you know queues and on the streets of london and in germany so you know i I think it is a little too late in that once you kind of have these ideas out there in a big way they may lose their facebook groups but they'll jump onto other platforms and they'll create new groups so um yeah i think it's kind of difficult it is definitely there is a, a a kind of a bent towards the slightly older person. And there was research in twenty eighteen from New York University found that three percent of eighteen to twenty nine year olds shared links from fake news sites, but eleven percent of the over sixty fives did. Why are older people more susceptible to this false information, or are they just on the internet more because they're retired? I, I've been thinking about this a lot because, you know, I have the occasional, the, I actually have an uncle who has shared the pandemic video and, and, you know, I have the occasional relative who, who has posted, you know, the like CNN.org or, or whatever. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think the, I suspect the reason behind this, and there's certainly been studies that have looked into this, is that younger folks who grew up with the internet um, are just a bit more discerning about the information they consume, I think. I think there was more of an attempt, um, at least certainly when I was growing up, to have a bit of media literacy. Um, mm. There could definitely be more. But I think young people generally have kind of, you know, think a bit more about where they're getting their news, whether those sources are reliable, even if indeed they're slanted, just having a better understanding of where that information is coming from. And, 
you know, just how to recognize fake or suspect domain names. Um, on the flip side, I think older folks who, you know, may not have necessarily been introduced to the internet in that way, um, you know, might just take information as it comes. And I think it's a lot easier for them to kind of fall into the trap of fake news when it's in dealing with subjects that they don't know anything about. So, you know, obviously if they see information that, you know, that just, you know, I'm I'm not trying to say that older people are just going to believe anything they read. That's not true. But when you're dealing with, you know, say a pandemic, for example, with, with a virus that none of us are really familiar with and all this information is new, they're probably going to look for quick answers. And, you know, when headlines coming out professing to tell you exactly what's going on, you might be more inclined to believe them. The QAnon theory, has it has actually driven wedges into families, hasn't it? There's quite a mm. comprehensive Reddit thread for QAnon casualties where users talk about how they've effectively lost a family member or a friend to this stuff and how incredibly hard it is to bring them back. And also just how heartbreaking it is when you, you can't actually talk to one of your loved ones anymore because they inhabit a different universe of truth. Is it possible to de-radicalise these people? You're your uncle who's sharing pandemic. <laughs> Were you able to say, come on, let's just like talk about this properly? Um, it's funny you ask because, you know, when he did share it, I, I did respond and, um, you know, we kind of had a conversation, a brief one. Um, but then my colleague, Joe Pinsker, actually had a great piece back in May about how to how to kind of, you know, speak to someone, a, a friend or a loved one who shares the plan, the pandemic video with you. Um, and as it turns out, according to the article, at least I responded in all the wrong ways. Um, there's that knee jerk, um, <laughs> there's that knee jerk, like, you know, almost like journalist sort of fact checky kind of desire to be like, you know, uncle, uh, I'm not going to insert his name. Not that I think mm. he's listening, but if you are, hi, hi uncle. Um, you know, uh, you know, th- this is ridiculous. How could you be so gullible? How, how could you believe this stuff? It's nonsense. Like, you know, kind of implying that they're, they're silly, they're stupid. And, and that's what, you know, at least according to this article, you're not meant to do. You don't want to make them feel foolish or naive. You, you want to acknowledge that there's, you know, it, there is a lot of information out there and, you know, you kind of want to gently from like an em- empathetic sort of way, kind of question the sources and kind of push back saying like, look, I, I know there's a lot out there. This is what I'm reading. And, and you know, th- this, this is what I think makes sense. That requires superhuman powers of self-control. And I'm very impressed at you. Yasmin, if you're able to do that, I, I just shout for God's sake, <laughs> this is horseshit. What are you saying? <laughs> Naomi, COVID misinformation has become the, you know, the stuff of comedy. And I was joking about weaponized bats a minute ago, but the, you know, there, there are fake stories about microchipping, altered DNA, Bill Gates is doing all, the, all you know, all of this. Why do these theories coalesce into one thing? Why, why, are the, why, why do people who believe in anti-masking also believe in the menace of 5G and believe that the election was stolen from Donald Trump and that George Soros runs everything? I mean, I think because as humans, we have a fundamental difficulty in mm. accepting randomness, you know, that things can just happen without a design plan attached to them. And then when some very clever humans are able to understand why something seemingly random has happened, you know, for instance, like like the Big Bang or something, it is beyond the wit of most of us to truly comprehend it. So we have a situation where we have a burning need to explain why shit happens. And, you know, that's 
probably what's fueling Gen Z getting so involved in horoscopes and they are literally obsessed with them. Uh, it really quite terrifies me. Um, but with our inability to fully understand the answers. So it's much easier, therefore, to retreat into the easy explanations. The government has secured a commitment from Facebook and Twitter and Google to tackle vaccine information, disinformation. And we've seen it tagged on social media feeds alongside the tags from tagging everything Donald Trump says. Labour are actually calling for emergency laws with financial penalties for companies who don't stamp out these kind of uh, mm. harmful misinformation stories. Is that a good idea? I mean, to be honest, I don't know. My gut reaction says yes, uh, because we know, you know all about the algorithms, particularly of YouTube, that, you know, fuel... Uh, you know, trapping people into, you know, endless watching, endless scrolling, et cetera, and getting more and more extreme content. Um, but my anti-authoritarian heart says no. And actually that what we need to do is just a lot more around educating children about science so that they're not scared of vaccines and about other religions and beliefs so that they're not scared of those from, from different backgrounds. And, you know, I, I, I do think that it probably does need that much broader view of public policy uh, decision-making uh, rather than just a sort of a knee-jerk thing against the, the tech companies. The erosion of public trust in officials and experts um, following things like the expenses scandal in the late noughties and many U-turns of successive governments have all helped fuel this. And I don't think you know just tweaking some, some algorithms on the, the tech channels is going to sufficiently do it. And we fail our children in their education because we don't have... You know, a, a sufficient curriculum uh, that, that teaches about a broad range of religion and beliefs, and we segregate children, particularly through state-funded faith schools that make up a you know very significant chunk of the number of state schools in the UK, and that all helps to build this sort of sense of othering and a lack of understanding about those from different backgrounds, and then makes it much easier for movements like QAnon to tap into the mindset of those who have never mm. met a Jew you know, or, you know, sell them the nonsense about them controlling the world. It's just so much less credible if you've grown up with kids from different backgrounds. Yeah. You got through an entire thing about Facebook there and never mentioned Nick Clegg once. I think that's brilliant, Naomi. You're growing. <laughs> I mean, it, nah. of course, he did cause coronavirus. You can, have a whole, you can have a whole episode of that if you want. You're growing as a person and I'm proud of you. Alex, do you think we're, are we, are we like a generational phase here? Is it, is this too big to be something that you can kind of argue people out of? Is, are we, is it like, you know, the 1950s and the 1960s where just got this demographic bulge? Again, it's, it's the boomers. It's the same people who experienced the 60s and we're just going to have to let them pass through the system before a different way of looking at the world arrives. I don't know. I don't think so. I don't want to get to a, to a space where I think it's hopeless and we just have to live with it until people basically die. I, I think that's quite a bleak outlook. But I do think the problem is a lot deeper than... And, and we keep trying to deal with the superficial symptoms of it without ever dealing with the root cause. I agree with what Yasmin and Naomi have been saying. I, I was looking at a poll recently that, uh, you know, looked at uh, Americans' belief in the scientific method, like the basic hypothesis proof uh, equation. Mm. And it was something like among Republican voters, like mid-40s percent did not believe in the scientific method mm. as, as a thing. Um, and it, quite interesting, sort of uh, uh, 20% uh, 
of Democrat voters also don't believe in the scientific method. So so we mustn't overly politicize it. You know, there are other aunts and uncles who, who need to put away their homeopathic remedies and their yeah. crystals on the other side of the political divide, and they're actually part of exactly the same spectrum. We just need to stop, I think, commercializing education. I think that is at the root of it, that we've made education a commercial thing that responds to what economic units uh, the industry needs at that point. So it gives a very narrow education. You know, mathematics, physics, chemistry, humanities, they they all, when taught correctly, form a philosophy, a way of looking at the, wor- at the world inquisitively. And that is something we really haven't fostered for decades. We haven't fostered citizens who are curious about the world in which they live in a, in a sort of constructive, constructive and rational way. And we're paying the price now. You might not have noticed, but the future of TV and broadcasting is in the balance right now. The government's public service broadcasting inquiry is considering whether the BBC licence fee should continue beyond 2027 and is looking at proposals to privatise Channel 4. There are 10 people on the panel, including past and present executives from Sky, Facebook, Endemol and BT, but nobody from the current BBC and no representative of viewers. We spoke to Sophie Chalk of The Voice of the Listener and Viewer. Public service broadcasting provides a range of content which is good, considered to be good for society. It's universal, so everybody should be able to get access to it without paying for it as they consume it. There's lots of content now available via what we call the SVODs, the streaming video on demand, suppliers, Netflix. This is also providing a greater range of choice, which is a good thing. Choice is great, but it's increasingly leading people to think, well, let, let's just let the free market do what it wants. We've got enough stuff out there, haven't we? It's all high quality. But we have problems with that because it's not all reg- regulated. It's not all high quality. Some of it's not accurate and it's certainly not free. How under threat are the public service broadcasters? Well, we have a lot of choice, but that choice is determined largely by how much you can afford to pay at the moment. And also, quality isn't guaranteed across the board. So on the public service broadcasters, on TV and radio channels, accuracy and impartiality are regulated for. So news content has to be accurate, otherwise the broadcasts will be in trouble. Radio has to be accurate and impartial, but podcasts don't. In a world which is increasingly polarised by disinformation, I think it's incredibly important that regulation is, is, is maintained, if not reinforced. BBC, as an institution, is threatened on a kind of almost a cyclical basis. Whether the government decides to back off a little bit now that some of the key advisors within Downing Street who may have been instrumental in influencing those attacks remains to be seen. I doubt very much that that any government wants to be the one which is responsible for the downfall of the BBC, which is one of Britain's most credible exports around the world. Trust in the PSBs has been undermined by the print media. And I think you have to look at the dynamic there. Print media are very keen that broadcasters shouldn't reduce their market. I think the attacks on the BBC are really the the tip of the iceberg on this. They're very obvious. 
from certain print publishers. Newspapers do not have to be impartial, and that's not something that everybody understands. We need reform to regulation, which sounds very dry, and I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon because of trade negotiations with America. We need reform to advertising and online regulation and prominence regulation so that all those regulations apply equally across all platforms. It's crazy. The current 2003 Communications Act separates that TV regulation set from online. Online was in its infancy in 2003. Can you believe we're, we're being regulated at the moment according to a law that was put in place in 2003, which is just crazy. So that regulation needs to be updated so that advertising regulation applies to online as equally as it does to broadcasting. That would make it a lot better for the PSBs. But I suspect there's going to be quite a row in the coming five years or so for us to end up in a position where we have something which is fit for purpose, there is a great risk we are going to lose the brilliant broadcasting we've been privileged to enjoy during our lifetimes and the next generation won't have it. Naomi, is this just a political hit on the uncooperative BBC? Yes. Uh, I mean, look, of course, there is always the risk that a state-run media can become hijacked by a political agenda. But, uh, you know, the BBC and Channel 4 in particular, even on their very worst days, really can never be accused of being Pravda. And they are national treasures and they're world-renowned and respected. And I think we should all fight to the bitter end to protect them. Because, as we've talked about many times in this show, we are in a culture war and this is but one strand of it. You know, we're witnessing those that campaign for Brexit turn their attention to other social issues, determined to further divide the nation over things like immigration, asylum, the judiciary, minority rights, and even what kind of comedy is broadcast on television. And we just have to stand up to it. Yasmin, the US is not a very good advert for the removal of balanced public service TV at the moment. Um, TV is literally destroying the country. <laughs> does the, does uh, the UK government understand that uh, it's kind of playing with fire? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Naomi's point is, was just, you know, kind of hit the nail on the head. I mean, you know, in addition to being national treasures, I think these are also great sources of British soft power. I mean, people around the world look to the BBC as a sort of definitive source of news that, you know, isn't perfect, not, not to say the least, but, you know, at the end of the day, strives to be as objective and factual as possible. And that's, you know, I think anyone who tried to tuning in to, to US uh, news channels for the election um, can tell you that that's certainly not the flavor that you get from, um, say, Fox News or MSNBC. Um, and, you know, I think, Britain already knows what depolarized media looks like. They are just familiar with it in the version of tabloids. Now, imagine taking tabloid journalism and, and all the kind of slants that way and applying it to TV. It's just, it's it's a lot of people just spouting nonsense most of the time. So um, I, I think it would be an incredible disservice. I mean, people do, if they want to get news that's, you know, kind of slanted more to their viewpoint, that there, there are ways to get it. It, it needn't be um, that, you know, you have it on, on television as well. Alex, for all the noise and racket around this, isn't the Conservative base rather fond of the BBC? You know, Antiques Roadshow, Mrs Brown's Boys, nice bit of drama on a Sunday night. Well, look, having spent having spent the last couple of months watching hours and hours on American networks, um, <laughs> let me tell you that I appreciate the <laughs> oasis that is advertising free BBC when I switch back to it, when I, you know, the, the news is not interrupted every three minutes by someone telling you to take a medicine <laughs> that. Um, I was going to say, you don't like our insurance commercials. Yeah. <laughs> You can um, see Kelsey, you can see <laughs> Frazier promoting insurance on Fox News. I love them. 
and Tom Selleck and Tom Selleck. <laughs> oh, Derek, oh my God. Come anyway, on, Tom. so not that I don't enjoy them as a cultural curiosity, but <laughs> but to have them interrupting the news every five minutes is a huge thing. And I think because we've become so accustomed to the BBC and take it for granted, we don't think of those kinds of things and how they disrupt actually the information flow. Having said that, I think the BBC does have questions to answer. I think it has been complacent for a very long time. I think it does have a liberal bias, but that liberal bias causes it to overcompensate Mm -hmm. by constantly promoting right-wing pundits. Uh, And I think that's the weird interaction. I don't think those two things are antithetical. I think the BBC does have a metropolitan liberal bias, but what that causes in its behavior is it causes it to book people like Nigel Farage every two weeks on question time in order to demonstrate that it doesn't have a bias. And we end up with a really, really profoundly rotten Mm. debate. Finally, that Mary Wollstonecroft statue. It's not a statue of her, it's a statue for her. But Maggie Hambling's tribute to the founding women's rights activist is perhaps the most controversial statue of, well, this month, if not the whole year. Atop an abstract silvery mass of ectoplasm, there's a small naked woman, and this has not gone down well. Protesters have swarmed to cover up the statue's nudity with tapes, T-shirts, and even a face mask. Hambling defends the figure as a universal every woman. Have we missed the point of this statue? Naomi, what do you think of it? Are the are criticisms justified? You know what? Uh, I am genuinely still a bit undecided on this one um, because largely I haven't had the bandwidth to give it the thought it deserves. Uh, and so bear with me on that. I mean, I am glad that it isn't a statue of her, um, rather for her, because it clearly doesn't really look like her. Uh, And I'm glad, I suppose, that the furore may have caused more people than would otherwise um, have done so to look up Mary Wollstonecroft and better understand her work. Um, and hopefully, you know, that that is what a lot of art does. It makes us think, it it, it challenges us to, to understand things better and, and to look things up. But I don't like that the woman is tiny in proportion to the base. I think the ratio is wrong on that. Um, I, I don't like that she is a chiseled version of a woman, you know, conforming to the stereotype of attractiveness. Um, and I, I don't like that the overall statue is a bit like a massive penis ejaculating out a small woman from the top of it. I'm going to say you've seen some strange penises then, because that's a, it's a very, very odd and abstract one. Um, I'm not the only what, one that has, that has thought that, that, that has been doing the rounds. I am intrigued. One thing that a lot of people said was, well, they'd never represent, uh, you wouldn't see naked Shakespeare and you wouldn't see naked Churchill. It's like, well, it's not her. It is uh, a, a, an abstraction of woman and... The kind of defence was that if you put clothes on her, then you identify her in a particular time or place or occupation. She becomes a specific person. Was that that, that sort of criticism that you, you don't see uh, naked men in this in this context? Is that valid? Because you kind of do in in classic satire, don't you? Well, if this is an abstract thing, then it, surely it can be an abstract penis. So I'll just you know challenge you on that. Fair enough. Anyway, Fair uh, you know, in the days in the days where I had to go to church for school or whatever, <laughs> um, I did used to switch off from what boring thing was being said at the pulpit by looking at the statues of Buff Jesus um, because mm. he's always ripped, right, and mostly naked. Um, and so you know, maybe if if we're deifying Mary in much the same way uh you know fine 
But yeah, men do, men, do, men do get statued in this way too. Mm. Alex, what, what did you think? I mean, a lot of the criticism centres on the idea that it focuses on the female physique, even though she's super tiny. Are, are people really um, being annoyed about art rather than, and, and abstraction rather than the content of the sculpture? I think in part, yes. I mean, I have to say, I, I know I'm in the minority here, but I actually quite like the sculpture. I think it looks interesting. I think it looks good in its environment. I think it draws you in to actually go and investigate it and see what it is and who whom is it dedicated to. Uh, and now that basically Naomi has told us it's a penis, I know why I like it. Um, <laughs> I, 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 did, I didn't know before, but I know now why I am drawn to it. Um, no, look, I, I think all of this is, uh, it, it, to an extent, premature nonsense. I think... Uh, you have to live with these things for a little while to see how they grow on you, to see how they mesh with their environment. There are so many stories about, you know, the the Eiffel Tower being seen as ugly when it was first built and the Sydney Opera House causing, uh, you know, people to protest and the Royal Festival Hall and, you know, and countless... Uh, politicians and royalty complaining about their statues and their portraits and uh, and think they're they're being disrespectful that we've now come to see as total classics in their genre and so i think uh, the proof of the pudding will be in its durability as a piece of art and that's not something we can judge you know, two days after it's unveiled. I mean, the, the statue was paid for by raising money locally um, from, you know, individual donors, sometimes quite, you know, small donations from, you know, members of the public and uh, yeah. overwhelmingly women. And I think the reaction was, well, we didn't expect that. That's not what we paid for. We, we expected something perhaps, you know, more heroic, more conventional, less open to a sort of instantaneous criticism because of because of nudity. Do, you know, but Maggie Hamling is an artist. Don't we just have to say... You know, when you commission an artist, you've got to go with what the artist goes with. That's her, yeah, that's her take mm. on it. I mean, I, I, there is some validity to the complaint of the people who donated because the campaign explicitly promised the statue of Mary Wollstonecraft um, and they didn't get what the, the crowdfunder basically promised them. So I think there is a narrow scope for some legitimate complaint but really it's you know it's one artist's take and i think the reason the reason it has taken on so much importance is because there are so few uh, uh, pieces of art dedicated to important women in history so that's what, what we need to get to a stage where there are so many pieces of art dedicated to women that it doesn't matter if I don't like this particular one or that particular one because there is a body of art that is dedicated to honouring the women. Yasmin, uh, you live nearby, as do I, not far from the sculpture for Mary Wollstonecraft. Have you been to see it? <laughs> I haven't yet, but this conversation really makes me want to go and, and check it out for myself. I have seen the photos um, uh, upon seeing the uproar on Twitter. So, no, I haven't seen it in person, unfortunately. 
Uh, it's hard to react to art when you've not experienced it as it's supposed to be uh, experienced. But what, what what did you think from a distance? I mean, my, my initial response is just this hilarious irony that, you know, we finally have a statue of a woman, as Alex was saying, rare in and of itself. Um, and it's devolved into a debate over her appearance. So that's mm. um, <laughs> that's fun. But um, but yeah, no, I mean, you know, I'm like Naomi, I, I don't have particularly strong feelings. Um, I just kind of from reading sort of, you know, the, the debate around it, um, this clearly seems to be a statue that's kind of, you know, honoring her legacy rather than, um, you know, to, to be a literal representation of, of the person um, herself. This isn't like, you know, the Millicent Fawcett statue on Parliament Square, which, which you know, obviously is a statue of Fawcett holding up a banner. Um, so, you know, in that way, I, I didn't find it really... Um, controversial in any particular way but you know it, it kind of did remind me of the the whole statue debate that we were having over the summer um that mm-hmm. one obviously kind of focusing on you know this debate around the individuals that we were choosing to honor in the public realm and you know particularly those whose legacies haven't exactly aged well um to alex's point i think obviously it's early days um but you know the fact that as as the artist has said that this isn't you know meant to be a statue of Mary Wollstonecraft, uh, that she is an artist. And, you know, at the end of the day, um, good statues are good art is provocative. You know, it, it makes us ask mm. questions of ourselves. And, you know, if, if you think realistically, when you're walking down the street and you see a statue, I mean, very few people, I think, stop to really look and observe it. But maybe perhaps when you see a statue like that, something that's just, you know, really striking seem, seems a bit unusual or weird, um, you know, you may well find that, that, more people will stop and actually wonder, hmm, what is this for? Um, and no doubt this controversy has probably prompted, um, you know, thousands, uh, if not more people to, to go and search and be like, well, who is Mary Wollstonecraft? What, what are people yammering about on Twitter now? If you'd said 12 months ago that in 2020, everybody will be locked down because of a world plague and the burning issue would be statues, they would have had you locked up, wouldn't they? Not yeah, I'd be like, a, there's no need to lock me up. I'm already locked up <laughs> exactly. <at this> point, <laughs> so... <laughs> We've come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics, the books, films, TV, music, or whatever that gives them respite from what's going on in the outside world. Naomi, what's your diversion from the world of politics this week? <laughs> You're going to laugh because it's a diversion from politics, but not from pandemics. I am rewatching all four seasons of Guillermo del Toro's The Strain. <laughs> uh, it was originally on FX. You can get it on uh, Now TV and things like that now. And it is just, it, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Amazing. It's got an amazing cast. It's all about a zombie vampire pandemic that hits Manhattan. And um, I love it. And uh, yeah, it's really, really good fun and great escapism from Brexit, if not from uh, the plague that, that cursed us this year. I've got to say that's a, a very original way of forgetting about a global <laughs> pandemic to watch a TV yeah. miniseries about a global pandemic. It could be um, worse, Alex- is what I'm saying. You watch that and realise, look, We've, we've got it easy. We don't have to take our silver swords and yeah. go out slaying the virus. Yeah. It's horrible, violent, bloody, but it's not boring like <laughs> the real world pandemic is. Alex, how about you? What are you distracting yourself with? Yeah, so the reason I cackled was because my escape route this week is also watching this <laughs> <laughs> because Naomi recommended <laughs> right. it to me, because I hadn't seen it at all. And I'm like, how did this Guillermo de, de, de Toro thing escape me? That's all a horror sort of it's sci-fi It's so good, thing. isn't it? What season um, are you on now? And, and so it, I'm just finishing oh, season lucky one. Thing. So no lucky spoilers. thing. Um, 
but but yeah, it's fantastic. And if you like this kind of mythology, what it does is it it takes vampire mythology and mixes it with with sort of science. Uh, so it explains, you know, how a vampire's digestive system works, for instance, <laughs> and how the virus is transmitted and all of that stuff. So the geek in me is just utterly thrilled. I'm so pleased. And I'm, watching, and I'm watching an episode right after this pod. Important knowledge that we all need for the uh, for the resetting the world. In the yeah, so of... sorry to double up. That's this fine, week, but it was it was genuinely a, a, a coincidence. Yasmin, what are you watching? And if you save the strain, there's going to be trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, oh, as luck would have it, no, I'm actually no. As a as a classic American, I'm doing what all Americans do. I am going deep into the Royals. I'm watching the Crown. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, I'm I'm kind of. To be honest, I'm basically just asking every British friend of mine, did Maggie Thatcher really sound like a chain smoker? <laughs> or is that, um, I, I don't know how, I, I, every time I watch The Crown, I end up like on the side Googling to see if something was actually real. And I will um, go try to find some footage of Thatcher to see if Gillian Anderson is actually giving a, a, a real uh, comparison of, of what she sounded like. But yeah, I, I was kind of surprised by the uh, portrayal. I, was like, I didn't expect her to sound that way. I don't know what I expected her to sound like, but um. The, that's my biggest takeaway, two episodes in. I, I, I can't watch it. My, my, uh, Gillian Anderson as Margaret Thatcher would give me just t- too many deeply confused yeah. opinions. I wouldn't know what to do with myself. My, <laughs> my escape route is actually something I can share with the listeners because it can be your escape route as well. If you're not doing anything on Saturday, and let's be honest, you're not, Saturday night uh, you can experience the 25th birthday party of Ducky, London's best nightclub. Um, a, a fantastic <laughs> London scene, LGBT club club uh, of the century the 25 years old and i'm helping them do a zoom virtual club so you can register oh my goodness i you, love Ducky. it's gonna be great it's gonna be fantastic so you've got london readers wives the fantastic djs oh my playing. god readers wives Yay. yep amazing dj and great pop music and the, you'll be able to see on the zoom screen the uh, virtual royal Vauxhall tavern but also if you register we'll be calling in some of the punters into the main screen so if you do your front room and uh you get your disco lights on you may get a moment of fame as well so go to ducky.co.uk to find out how to register it's on zoom so you'll need zoom for your computer plug your computer into the big speakers to get a good sound and uh yeah you may be called in for a moment of fame and if that doesn't help you escape from politics and stop you watching things about zombies i don't know what will that's coming up this saturday <laughs> uh, the 21st and that's the end of this week's bunker thank you to our panel naomi smith thank you very much Alexandreo. Thank you. And Yasmin Saran. Thanks for having me. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can also back the Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just say our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. And if you back us, you get a shout-out on the show. And here are some now. Thanks and best wishes from me to Katie Heald, Adam Dadeby, and Carol Langham. Hello, and many thanks from me to Jean Hackett, Marie Pret, and Phil Pinnell. And a thank you from me to Sarah Wigglesworth, Megan Donaldson, and Andrew Maynard. And hello, and best wishes from me to Dale Jeffson, Amy Felsinger, and Joan Ballons. We'll see you all next time.
is a Podmasters production. Thank you.